Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligent Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're borrowing an episode from one of our sister podcasts, How I Found My Voice, recorded in 2020. Host Samira Ahmed is joined by Grammy award-winning singer, international superstar and survivor of both political and physical adversity, Gloria Estefan. From fleeing Cuba as a young child to selling over 120 million records worldwide, Gloria's journey is truly awe-inspiring. And uh, when I started talking, I started singing. It came with me. I would emulate whatever in Cuba. They literally had to pull me off the sidewalk because somehow from hearing on the radio and on TV, I learned the revolutionary anthem that the Castro regime was putting out there. And my father was in jail. The front of the bus had been torn away. It was snowing inside the bus, which ended up being a blessing because now the first thing you do to a victim of a spinal cord injury is put them on ice. Hello, and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice Live. I'm Samira Ahmed, and I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is one of America's greatest communicators and greatest musical stars. Gloria Estefan was born in Cuba just before the revolution that brought Fidel Castro to power 
but her family had to flee as exiles and brought her to Florida at the age of two, where she's lived ever since. She formed the Miami Sound Machine with her husband Emilio and their crossover pop hits such as Rhythm Is Gonna Get You, Dr. Beat and Get On Your Feet has made them stadium-filling, chart-topping superstars, first in Latin America, then in the US and across the world. She sold 100 million albums, been a seven-time Grammy winner and a Hollywood actor. But at the peak of her fame in 1990, she nearly died in a crash that was expected to leave her paralysed. It didn't. Her life has inspired a Tony-nominated stage musical, Get On Your Feet, that's also travelled around the world. And her latest album sees her combine the rhythms of Brazilian music with reworkings of some of her classic pop hits. So, Gloria, I, I always want to take my my guess back to the start. You were born, you have a long name, but the first three names, Gloria Maria Milagrosa in 1957 in Cuba. Milagrosa, the miraculous one. Did you feel special? I don't know if special is the word, but ever since I have a memory, I remember thinking first that I was really old for some reason. I felt like I had been around. And I also felt that one day I might do something very different. I didn't know what it was or how it would come about. But I did have a feeling that there was something in my future that was not going to be more the same. It was going to be a unique thing. I had no clue what. But I sing since I talk. That came with me. Yeah, that maybe because I do have very strong genetic musical genes on both sides. On my dad's side, we had a classical pianist, a classical violinist, a flautist that had his own band, famous in Cuba, Fajardo and his all-stars, Fajardo y sus estrellas, who later, when he emigrated to New York, also made it big with his band there. Both my uncles, my father's brothers, sang. My grandmother wrote poetry. My father was a military guy. He was the one that didn't venture into. I bet he probably could have sung if he wanted to. And then my mother won a contest to be Shirley Temple's double as a child. She was what? her same age. Wow. She had the curls. And they had a worldwide contest to find a Spanish-speaking Shirley Temple so that they could take her to Hollywood and she would serve as a stand-in for Shirley Temple and a lot of the contract players of the day, like Deanna Durbin and other uh, Jane Wyman, and she won. But when they told my grandfather that one of them, him or my grandmother, had to give up the rights to their child because they didn't want to sign a contract and then have a divorce happen and have the child become a pawn, he put his foot down and told my grandmother, absolutely not. She's not going anywhere. So to me, my mother was always the diva of the family. She walked into a room and you knew she was there. She was always telling jokes. She would break into song. And the only way she could get my diaper on, she claims, was or claimed, was to sing to me. I would melt. I would completely melt and become, let's stare at her and like hypnotized. And uh, when I started talking, I started singing. It came with me. I would emulate whatever in Cuba. They literally had to pull me off the sidewalk because somehow from hearing on the radio and on TV, I learned the revolutionary anthem that the Castro regime was putting out there. And my father was in jail for being a police officer. And the night of the presidential palace when the coup happened, he got arrested along with his father, who was a commander in the in the armed forces. So imagine I'm there in this singing this anthem and my 
my mother's saying, you can't sing, I come inside. But I just had a, an amazing memory for music and it started really early. Can I ask a bit more about your father? What was his story? He was he was in jail already when you were very, very young. Yeah, what happened was he was, my father wanted to be in the army. He was a military guy. He loved it. And he had filled an application to join the army. When my grandfather saw his application, he ripped it up and threw it away and never told my dad because he didn't want to be accused of nepotism with a son joining the army. So when my when my you know, father asked my grandfather, hey, what's happening? I, I haven't got my application back. I applied. He goes, no, I ripped it up. I don't, I don't want you to be in the army. They're going to accuse me then of being having favoritism. So then my father did the next best thing. He became a police officer in the motorcycle police force and got a reputation for being an incredibly moral man. He would not accept anything, even an apple or a box of cigarettes, a pack of cigarettes from anyone. And then the first lady found out, plus he was a gorgeous, I got to say, my dad was a gorgeous man. He was beautiful. And they chose, they handpicked the first lady's motorcycle escort, and he was one of them. So wherever the first lady, Batista's first lady, went, my dad had to be there because he was in the motorcade, heading the motorcade. And the night that the coup happened... 58 to 59, he was at the presidential palace because there was a giant party, New Year's Eve party going on. And he was there in the detail for the first lady. So he came home. My mother said he was pale as a sheet, sweating profusely and locked himself in the bathroom and told my mother, you know, she knocked on the door. What's happening? What's happening? And he said, we are in real trouble. The president just left the country. I just left him and the first lady at the airport, and this is going to get really bad. And she said, don't go back. And he goes, I have to go back. I'm a police officer for this city. All hell's breaking loose. And he went back and she told him they're going to jail you. And he goes, I have to go back, whether or not they jail me. And yes, they jailed him and his father and then released him three months later because they jailed his father for nepotism because they were trumping up charges and of course, there was no proof of anything and they hadn't done anything. So they had to release him three months later. Were you already in Florida by then? No, we were still in Cuba. My mother took me to visit my father in jail. And one of the top three, it was Fidel Castro, Camilo Cienfuegos and Che Guevara were kind of the three heads of the revolution. And Camilo Cienfuegos was at the prison that day and I was in, in line with my mom and of course, like a child, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. And my mother's trying to shut me up. And Camilo Cienfuego comes and grabs a little tin cup from the wall and fills it with water and hands it to me. And my mom didn't want me to drink that. God knows what germs were on that. And when she said, no, no, thank you. And he says, what, this isn't good enough for you, whatever. And he, he made me drink it. And I got a huge infection in my mouth. And I remember this because they would treat it with uh, this violet tasting stuff that they would put in my mouth for the sores and ooh, can't stand the taste of violet. I still remember it to this day, but yeah, I, she would visit him in the house, in the, in the jail and take him supplies and, and so that I could see him. So I don't have a lot of memories of that. I remember that. 
Yeah, but your family did end up uh, coming to Florida, which has been your home since. Obviously, many Cuban exiles uh, came and escaped. But your father stayed engaged in the politics. And I just wonder, growing up as a small child, what sense you had of what was going on with your family and how it affected you? Well, what happened was my father came on the ferry to keep, once he was released from jail in Cuba, he tried to find a job. You know, he tried to look for a job and they were blacklisted, his entire family. He also knew a lot of information about Castro because of his father being in the army. And so he told my mother, I have to get you and Glorita out of Cuba. And my mother didn't want to go. She says, I'm not leaving without you. He goes, I'm going to go first and set, set us up. So he went on the ferry to Key West. He found an apartment. Uh, and then my mother and I flew on Pan Am Airlines, her and I. They only let us take one suitcase. They ripped up her PhD in education at the airport because they told her, no, you're not taking your education, which is really an inane comment because your, your education isn't a piece of paper. It's <laughs> an experience and, you know, an intellect and whatnot, but well. They thought that they were doing her harm there. It did cost her in the long run. She had to go back to school here and revalidate her teaching credentials. So, but then he brought us here. We lived with my aunt who had also left Cuba for a few weeks. Then we found an apartment that my mother found. And immediately upon moving in, my father disappeared. He left a note to my mother and told her, you're gonna be receiving $150 a month from the U.S. government, here's the name, here's the number for a doctor. I can't tell you where I'm going, but please, you know, take care of Glorita. I can't give you any more details. We now know he had gone to train in Guatemala. They trained, the U.S. Army trained them with top of the line equipment. And when they finally got to Cuba, the equipment that they actually sent was broken down. It was nothing of what they had been expecting. They didn't deliver the munitions that were necessary. They literally left them on the banks of, of Bay of Pigs and all the air support and everything that they were expecting from the Americans didn't materialize. So my father was the head of the tanks division. He was jailed immediately there. And he. my mother only found out that something was going on the night before the invasion he came to the house and he told her that he would be leaving again and that he didn't know what was going to happen. So all of a sudden, my mother, we see on the news this thing happen. We don't hear from him. And it wasn't until we saw on television when Cuba posted the videos of the men that they had arrested and had in custody that my mom found out that my dad had been arrested in Cuba after the invasion. Days later, he had been in hiding. They had killed his captain inside the tank, and he had to have, the, the, the turret was broken, so he had his dead captain with him for four days in that in that. How tank. long till he was released and came back home? Two years. He was a political prisoner in Cuba for two years, and he came with the exchange that Kennedy made for trucks and medicines to Cuba. They let out, not all of them, but they let out quite a few of the men that were in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And that was like my mother, we, she would drag me from rosary to rosary to church to praying for all our men. And then 
She had moved in all her friends into these two little strips of apartments that she had found brand new. So I was raised kind of like in a commune. It was only women. And all the women had their men in jail in Cuba. And they all had kids more or less my age. And we bought one car that cost $50, an old car. Only one of them could drive. So they would pile us all in, all the kids in, and go do groceries together or go do laundry together. And we're really an amazing support system for each other. And my mom would have me sing and recite poetry for them as entertainment at That's the time. That's so interesting because, you, you know, it was a tough life. You worked hard too um, in those years. Um, one thing that I, I was really surprised to hear was that you have this very strong memory of, I think it was being with your mom in the car and hearing Ferry Cross the Mersey. Absolutely. by Jerry and the Pacemakers, and it setting something off in you, which I think a lot of British listeners would be surprised. What, what was it about that moment? I'll tell you what happened. I mean, my, my mom's record collection was my first introduction to music. So she not only had Celia Cruz, Cachao, all the big greats of Cuba, but she also had Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Andy Williams, Johnny Mathis, and Carmen Miranda from Brazil, later on Shobim, you know, these amazing, the big Brazilian waves. So that was the first thing I listened to. But when my father came back from Bay of Pigs, he joined the U.S. Army. He went into training for six months. And we were stationed then in San Antonio, Texas, to Fort Sam Houston. He was doing intensive English. He went in as a, an officer. So I remember my sister was born in 63. My father actually met President Kennedy when he came to Texas right before he was assassinated. And he thanked him for what he had done to get them out of Cuba. But in any case, I was driving up to a laundromat with my mom and the radio was on. And I hear this song come on. And I was, my hair stood on end on my arms. I still remember sitting mesmerized and I wouldn't get out of the car. My mom said, let's go. I go, mom, let me finish this song. And I stayed in the car and the smell of laundromat was coming in through the window. And to this day... Whenever I hear that song, I smell laundromat. I have an olfactory memory that's crazy. But that song moved me deeply. And only in retrospect did I realize that it's a bolero. told me, you know, you were singing from the start. What's really struck me, listen, I was really listening to a lot of your music from, you know, going right back to the 70s. Your voice was always strong. It was always pure. And even now it seems entirely unchanged. Did you have to work on it, to develop it, to maintain it? Absolutely. And, you know, I couldn't afford music lessons or voice lessons. My mom couldn't afford it. When we were in South Carolina a couple of years after Texas, we were stationed in Fort Jackson. And one of my dad's troops was a young man that was famous in Cuba. His whole family, they had a TV show and he was a young child on the show, but now he was in his 20s. So I told my dad, I want to learn guitar, dad. I really want, you know, somebody to teach me the guitar. So he spoke to this man, Rolando Ochoa, who had a famous uh, family in Cuba. And he started teaching me how to play chords so I could accompany myself on, you know, on the guitar. So, but I, 
he was charging nothing. He was just happy to be able to do something other than be in the army. Later on, I learned classical guitar for my dad because he really wanted me to learn that. When he was in Vietnam, he later went to Vietnam, I was studying classical guitar. But we couldn't afford voice lessons or wouldn't have known where to look for that. It wasn't until I was already in the band, married, and had my son that I started investing because it really is a very valuable investment for any singer, any musician. When, you're, when your instrument is your body, You know, I had a lot of bad habits to break because I sang emotionally since I was a child. I didn't know the right technique or where to position your voice, but always wanting to do things better. So I found an Italian teacher, Gina Moretta, who started teaching me the right technique and thank the Lord because you can ruin your voice. I had an 18-piece band behind me. It was super loud on stage. And if, you, if I didn't have these tools, and I've continued to study through my life. I, all this time that people said I may, I came back, I, I, I didn't come back from anywhere. I've been here just doing a lot of other things, but continuing to hone my skills. I think it's important to continue to learn and evolve and grow. But from a very young age, you were performing. So when you went to university, you were performing at weekends. You'd already met your husband by then, hadn't you? Tell me about how you met Emilio and how quickly you became this unit as performers as well as as partners. It's kismet, like anything else, I believe. I believe that destiny throws some, some things in your path. Of course, we are free whether we choose to follow that path or totally flip it on its ear. I sang at the folk masses because my friends in high school would always make me sing. They loved my voice. You know, if there was ever, I went to an all-girl Catholic high school. My best friend, they'd make me bring my guitar and sing in the shows. And, and that was dying because I really don't like being the center of attention. I had to get used to that part. So we would, we had a brother school because it was an all-girls school. And in that brother school, one of my friends, the guy, we would play in the folk masses together. And he was a year ahead of me. He said, look, I want to put together a band for one day for our parents for this religious encounter. They were coming back because I want you to be the singer. My, my dad works at Bacardi. He's gonna, he invited this guy to come over that has his own band, Miami Latin Boys, to give us some pointers on how to do this. So of course I was dying. I'm sitting there on the floor. My friend was at the, his guitar. There was a piano player, a flute player girl there. And there's a knock at the door and I'm sitting on the floor. So my first view is a pair of really nice legs in a pair of shorts and an accordion, which made it look like he was naked, quite honestly, because <laughs> the accordion <laughs> covered the shorts So I'm going like, oh, what's this? All right, so in walks Emilio. At the time, he only had a mustache. And I see him. He seemed like a big man to me, although he's only four and a half years older than me. So that man, I was 17 right there. So he was uh, 22 because this was May. He had just turned 22. He gave us the pointers. He heard me saying he left. We did the gig. Everybody went their separate ways. I already had two jobs because college work study since I'm a French minor. I was working as an interpreter at the airport in customs and immigration for French, Spanish, and English. That job was every day, six days a week, from one in the afternoon to nine at night. Then from 9.30 to 11.30, two nights a week, I taught community school guitar. And I was about to start school going from eight in the morning to noon. So I was swamped and my mom tried to drag me to a wedding that summer of one of my dad's army buddies daughter that I grew up with in 
South Carolina. I tried to bail on it and say, Mom, no, I, you know, I'm too busy. With it. But then she guilted me into it. Your father can't go. He's ill. You need to represent. Like, you know, Cuban guilt. That's big. So I went. And I remember we were always late to everything. So we missed the ceremony at the church. We're walking into the reception. And I look and there's, to me, I mean, I had never gone anywhere. I I took care of my dad the whole time. I didn't date anyone. I never had a social life. So I walk into this magical room all decorated for the wedding and there's a band playing and they're, they're playing Do the Hustle on the accordion, the guy. I'm going like, whoa, that's brave. But it was like this charisma that they had and this happiness. And I was overwhelmed with that feeling, right? So we run into each other in a doorway and I go, he says, you're that girl, aren't you? I remember you. I go, yeah, I remember you too. You you came to Rafael's house, my friend. So he says, why don't you sit in with the band? You know, we don't have a singer. I go, oh my God. And my mother, who was sitting there listening in, goes, yes, sing, please. I found two songs that we both knew, Cuban Standards. I sang. I got a standing ovation. They knew me my whole life, these people. They had been listening to me sing since I was a girl. But with that band behind me, it was magical to me, too, and clutching the mic stand like I'm going to die. And that night, he asked me to join the band, and I said, no. I go, listen, I can't. My mom will kill me, first of all. And secondly, I've got two jobs. I'm starting school. I, I can't. So then two weeks later, he tracked me down. He, he called the people. He found my number. He called my house. My sister picked up and she says, it's that boy. So I talked to him and I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to so bad. And he said, look, come to my apartment. We have rehearsal. Bring whoever you want to bring. I brought my mother, my sister, and my grandma. And I remember being up against the wall of the apartment like, with a crowded, tiny apartment with a nine-piece band and everybody in the courtyard dancing. Again, another magical moment, because they had no choice. The band was rehearsing. It's either dance and party or not sleep. And uh, I joined the band for fun. That's and that it. became Just, Miami Sound Machine. It became Miami Sound Machine later on when we did our first recording in 1976. By the time he realized that we weren't just boys anymore, he was my boss for a year and he wanted, Emilio wanted to do an original album. So he was getting ready to go into the studio and another musician friend of ours who ended up being the best man at our wedding, he had another band. He said, look, there's a small local company. They're interested in signing you. Why don't you do the album with them? Emilio invited me to write. And I said, look, I've done parodies and poems. I think I could write music. I did. We recorded our album in a very short time because we didn't have a budget, really. Got it on the radio in South America. So all of a sudden, a year or so later, we were going to do a stadium with like 50,000 people in Latin America and then wedding in Miami for 200 people because they weren't so, playing our music. Yeah, I've I got to ask about this because not many acts have that where you're a huge stadium-filling super band in across Latin America, but you hadn't yet broken through in the US. Did it affect how you performed in that strange period before you broke through in America? Every performance I did affected how I performed and I tried to grow with each one. And what it did is give me a very clear picture on fame. 
because it's something that's relative. It's given to you. It's not anything that you hold intrinsically. It's something that can be given and taken away. So it was really useful to me to go over there and uh, you're this huge star and then come back here and you're playing a wedding. So it, it really keeps your feet on the ground. And I loved every minute of it. I loved the wedding just as much as I loved the 50,000 people, you know, watching and cheering. And it just made us continue to want to grow and evolve and get our music to other places. And it, it gave me the opportunity to grow slowly and to get comfortable in my own skin and just relax and let people see how music felt to me. My memory of the 80s is defined by you and my own sound machine and the joy of your songs, the joy of those videos, which in you know, England in the 80s, it was so exciting and glamorous, this sense of, of this exciting culture that you were part of. When fame did come, global fame, how did you feel? And did it always feel that you were, you were, you were in control of it? The fame part was the last thing that I ever thought about. I didn't read my own press. Because undoubtedly, I had a different feeling when I would finish an interview and when at the beginning I would read what they wrote, I'd go like, what? It frustrates you. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to focus on that. We would just focus on producing the music we loved, writing, the excitement of preparing the shows, making the shows bigger and better than ever, growing in that way. Emilio stopped performing so he could be more in control and help me by being in charge of lighting and sound. And I could feel comfortable up there knowing that there was somebody in the front taking care of that. So his ego wasn't a problem because sometimes in this world, egos get you in trouble. That They really do. I mean, you need to have an ego. Everybody has one. But when it starts being detrimental or you just think about you being like above and beyond everything else, that's a big trap. So we've always been a team, Emilio and I. It was inevitable. We fell in love slowly and uh, then we dated for two years before we got married. So I knew him well before I made that commitment. And he just, you know, we've evolved and grown. I, I've been there for him. He's been there for me. We're really a team and that's important. Yeah, so I was blessed. It is it is just amazing that you are such a, a strong unit still. Can I ask a bit about the songwriting? Because one of the things that really is striking is how prolific you have been and the quality of your songwriting. And I, I wonder if relatively briefly you could give us an insight into how you write. Has it evolved? Hmm. I wish I could tell you a formula. There's two ways in my estimation of writing a song. There's inspiration. And these songs I feel come through me rather than from me. I There are certain channels, and most of my songs I've written between midnight and six in the morning when my family's asleep, when the phones aren't ringing, and when the airwaves, like the vibe waves, are quieter on my side of the world. So that's when I've felt more inspiration, and that's when I feel like I can really, you know, some songs have been written 15 minutes, anything for you coming out of the dark. They've been 
They've come through me, like I said. Other ones, you learn and you craft and you can always be better. We, we connect more on a very deep emotional level when we're going through sadness or difficulty or pain. And people can identify that. They know you're honest because when they feel those things, you can't, you can't BS that. You can't, you can't make it up. You, you can't fake it. So people will know if something is honest without knowing why they know, but they know it gets on the music and that's what it's been. It's been my expression of emotion for my whole life and thoughts and musings and analysis. And I pour it into my music. One of the things I remember so well, it's one of those moments where you know, I know exactly where I was, when I was, and I was in a car on my way to school because of the time difference, the news broke overnight, was when I heard about the, the road crash in which your coach, you were touring, it was 1990, it was kind of peak of your fame, and you were in a, involved in a road accident, and you know your back was broken, and it was terrible. I remember how scared we all were. I don't know how you feel speaking about it. Do you remember the accident itself still? Every minute. I kept praying to faint and I wouldn't. But I took a lot of hope in the amount of pain that I was in. Because since I knew so much about the spine and the workings of the human body because of what I'd gone through with my dad, he came back from Vietnam with Agent Orange poisoning. And they said he had MS, multiple sclerosis. But it was... He had so many symptoms that had nothing to do with that. It was triggered by this uh, Agent Orange poisoning. So I knew, and I knew that if I was feeling pain that I hadn't severed the cord. But funny enough, you know, I've always, we all have this, but I've always had a kind of psychic thing where I get these flashes that just come into my mind as a certainty, and they happen. So cut to that day on the bus, you know, needless to say, having a father in a wheelchair, that was one of my big fears, too. We feel this explosion. I was, I had just woken up from a nap. I thought we were, we had arrived at the concert venue and we had stopped because there was an accident seven miles ahead of us and all the traffic was backed up. I opened my eyes and boom, it felt like a crash. I thought momentarily we had just met the president at the White House. I thought maybe somebody had put a bomb on the bus because they weren't happy about it. I don't know what I thought, but I opened my eyes on the floor of the bus, looking up. The front of the bus had been torn away. It was snowing inside the bus, which ended up being a blessing because now the first thing you do to a victim of a spinal cord injury is put them on ice. So nature, without this being known yet at that time, put me on ice. Emilio was on top of me bleeding like profusely. It was, I was, I tried to get up and I couldn't. I couldn't get up from the floor of the bus. I had a metallic taste in my mouth. I felt around my back to see if something was coming out, like if some bone or there was blood. Fortunately, that hadn't happened. 
But I knew in that is instance that I'd broken my back. And I told Emilio, I go, babe, I think I broke my back. And he goes, no, no, maybe you dislocated. I go, find the baby. Because at this point, all I'm thinking is my son had been in the back of the bus. Fortunately, he had gotten up to get some candy out of his bunk and the whole back was crushed. So he was under everything that had fallen in the center of the bus and the dark. When Emilio brought him and sat him next to me, I was looking at him. He didn't seem injured, but he looked like he was going to go into shock. He kept saying, Mommy, please get up, please get up. And I couldn't. So I held his hand and I told him, look, I can't get up right now, but hold my hand. You know, you make me feel better. I picked a point on the roof of the bus and started doing my Lama's breathing to try to be able to withstand the pain. And at the same time thinking, at least I have pain. There was a nurse behind us on a, in a car. She found her way around the doorway. We almost went over an embankment and she said, I'm a nurse, can I help you? And I said, I think I broke my back. And I was grabbing my legs and lifting them up because it would alleviate a little bit because two vertebrae had been pushed in and exploded and were, my spine was literally resting on a sliver of bone and I, I was numb but pain, in pain. And she held my head for an hour and a half until the paramedics got there. She put my head in her lap and said, don't move, you cannot move. And in the end, you had all this surgery, but you defied all the doctor's predictions. You were back in a year, I think, weren't you? 20 days shy of a year. On March 1st, 1991, I stepped back on stage in Miami. That wasn't my plan. All I cared about was walking. But then six months after my accident, when I saw my body coming back, I thought, you know what? Maybe this is the whole reason that I became famous. Amazing. Now, I'm conscious of the time we have left. I wanted to look at the music you've recorded since, and there's, well, there's two albums I want to pick out. One is, you once said your 1993 album, Mi Tierra, was your favourite. It's a Spanish language album. It's about a kind of sense of Cuba before Castro. What would you say is your relationship with Cuba now? Do you still see yourself as an, an exile? And what would it take to go back? Absolutely, I'm an exile. That, that Besides the fact that that's the description and anything I've ever read, uh, Cuba's very strong in my heart and mind because my mother made it a point that we deeply know our roots, our traditions, our culture. First, because she thought we were going back. I have a round trip ticket in my, you know, safe deposit box, Pan Am Airlines. And then when she saw that that wasn't going to happen, it became even more important. We spoke only Spanish at home. I learned English when I went to school. I sang all those songs, those old songs for my mom and my grandmother. So when we came up with the concept of Mi Tierra, I knew how those words were used. I knew what vocabulary. Latins use a lot of double entendre. There's a lot of sex talked about, but underneath the words, it's always subtext because they, so it's very sexy, it's beautiful. And I knew how these things were shaped. So we worked for five years on that album and we released it at the peak. They thought we were crazy to take a risk like that when we were at the top of the pop charts. And I would always say, this is exactly why I want to do it right now, because there's going to be an interest of my fans to learn more about where I came from and where this sound came from. So for my kids and my grandson, that became so important too, to salvage part of our culture through musically through that album. 
And that's why I'm so proud of what it did worldwide and continues to. audience questions very shortly. I have one other question I wanted to ask. You're launching your own online chat show with your family, aren't you? That's going to start in October. Oh, yes. We're going to do Red Table Talks. It's an offshoot of Jada Pinkett Smith's eponymous like series that she started, whole new genre. It'll be Red Table Talk, the Estefans. It's my daughter, my niece, Lily, who's an Emmy-winning TV personality for 30 years on Latin television, and me discussing topics that are, you know, really important to our times, to women, to families, and, you know, Latinos have a tough time discussing some of these things. So we're going to be honest and as natural and bare as Jada has been in our own way, and we're starting recording it. Hopefully this will come out in October. Excellent. Right. I've got some questions coming in now. So this is from Ian. From all of the songs you have written, which one resonates most with you today? Oh, Lordy. (laughs) That's tough. That's an impossible question. Because they all mean something different and they all have such special meaning. But I think Con Los Años Que Me Quedan was the first one I wrote with Emilio, together with him. So that's always going to be, and it's become an amazing wedding song. But I mean, I love all of them. They all mean something very special to me. A question about Cuba. We've talked a bit about your feelings about it as an exile. And a question's come and saying, you know, what would it take for you to play there? I, am I right in thinking the Pope, Pope John Paul II, did ask you to accompany him on a visit, but you didn't feel you could go? He did ask me. It was going to turn a beautiful spiritual mission into a political one because I wasn't going to stay quietly by and not say the things that I've said worldwide that I don't agree with this dictatorship that has been in Cuba. I think it's the longest running dictatorship at this moment right now. Uh, Even though Fidel's gone, his family is still very much in control. I would want Cuba to be free, free to choose who they they want in power, free to join the world, uh, free to travel wherever they want to go, which they can't, free to choose their careers and not be told what to study, you know, just free to speak their minds, even if they disagree. And, you know, who knows at this point if I'll ever get that opportunity, but that would be what I would want in order to celebrate with them their freedom. I'm thinking about you've spoken at the United Nations. You've done a lot of fundraising for survivors of hurricanes in Haiti and Puerto Rico. Have you ever thought about going into politics or a more formal form of public life? God, no. To me, I think I have a lot more power to, to do good and to make change from the private sector. The minute you get involved in politics, it's a a machine that chews you up and spits you out. And you know what? Thank you that somebody at least puts themselves under that kind of scrutiny and craziness to try to, you know, lead a country or a nation or whatever. But it's a machine that has very, you know, (laughs) tentacles. And I would not want to get involved in anything of that nature. I would try to hope that they try to elevate the rhetoric and try to really think about what's good for the people that they're leading. And it's a tough, politics is a tough animal. I really don't 
I, it's something that I, my music took me away from politics. That's why you're never going to hear it again. Well, my second question follows on then from what you've just said. You know, you have won many awards, including the U.S. Medal of Freedom by President Obama. You were the first married couple together with your husband to receive the medal. Yes, that was a and you were the first Cuban-American to receive a Kennedy Center honor, which is given for outstanding lifetime contribution to American culture. And I wonder what honors like that do mean to you, because I think they do mean something to you. Yes. Being honored for your contribution to culture. You know, to receive the highest honor that is bestowed on a, on a citizen and a civilian from, you know, the presidency, from the government, from Congress, for example, Library of Congress, that chose rhythm is going to get you as one of only 500 songs to be protected from a nuclear blast. I don't know who is going to care about listening to music after a nuclear blast, but needless to say, because supposedly it changed the cultural fabric of this nation. As an immigrant, I know my father was smiling from heaven that day. My mother got to see us receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and we were incredibly honored, Emilio and I, to be the first couple to receive it. It was really special. And it was one of those moments that we will remember forever. And accolades are nice, they're wonderful, but that's never been the reason we've done anything in our life. So things like that are, are very meaningful. And also for us as Cuban Americans and as exiles. I'm going to read some of the comments that have come in from audience, and then I have a final question to wrap with you. Robert Abbott says, your fans love your introspective side, unwrap slash destiny. Any plans to record more music like that down the line? I did if you have a brief answer. Listen, I would love nothing more than to do that. I did it in a, a little snippet during COVID when I wrote We Needed Time. That came from a conversation with my son, and I, it, that's inspiration. That's one of the... I, I hung up the phone. I told him, he said, he literally said to me, mom, you know, this has been tough, but it gave me time to catch up and something hit me. And I said to him, there's a song in there somewhere. And he said, write it, mom. I hung up the phone and I started writing immediately. And by the end of the day, I had written that song. I recorded it. I went out on my boat and shot a video and I put it out there as a gift to my fans. So I did in a kind of little small way. I gave it as a gift. I, you know, that's what a musician does. We try to translate the things that we're living and experiencing as humans into writing or art or painting or music. So I, I've been doing it. Like, would I love to? Yes, I would. Absolutely. You know, there's so many things. I'd love to do another Christmas album. I'd love to do a Spanish standards. I'd love to do a part two of the standards, but all up tempo and call it the double standard. So it's like, you know... <laughs> We're writing these down I, and we're going to hold you to them. I would them. love it, but you know what? It takes time and so much time. Yeah. Well, you've got time. Um, I have a final question, which is about the Gloria Estefan who might have been, which is the Gloria Estefan who worked at the as a translator at the airport and could have been a spy for the CIA. Yeah. What happened? Hey, who knows? You got approached. I did very much because they had been observing me in customs. They're undercover there. I didn't know that. But they were observing me. I, they wanted me to be a supervisor. They had already offered me the supervisor role in my job. Uh, I already joined the band, so I was kind of heading in a different direction. But I was very honored that they considered that. And they approached me. They they wanted me to join. And uh, I was all about it. I was so excited when I came and told my mom. She had the biggest fit that I had seen her have she goes, I, your, your father already gave his life for two countries. How could you tell me you're going to live your life? How am I going to be able to live the rest of my life worrying about you? Blah, 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 blah. So 
Cuban mom comes through. Although I would really bug her. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years for our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. This event was originally produced by Head of Podcasts, Farah Jassat, and I'm your host, producer Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.